Mini episode 1488 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1488. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here with one of our favorite FDH Lounge dignitaries, my good friend, FDH Hoops Analyst Ben Chu. And we are here to review the 2022 NBA Finals. We did, of course, a preview of the Finals not long before this. And uh, coming out of the Finals here, the uh, basketball world is all abuzz about this dynasty out there and, you know, getting over yet again and winning it again in the end. And I, I think they're focused in the wrong direction, not least of which because, admittedly, I hate Golden State. Uh, but what they should be talking about here, you want a dynasty. The only dynasty I see is 8-0. Uh, not a, not a winning a number of titles in a number of years, 8-0. and Because for the last eight years on this show, as we've been doing NBA Finals previews, Ben Chu has nailed every one of the picks. I'm 6-2, and two, by the way. I mean, I would be considered very good by, by most measures. Uh, if you're not comparing me to the success rate of Ben Chu, I was wrong in 2019 and in 2021. But Ben nailed those, as he did all the rest, the other six that we agreed on, including this year. So to you, I say, Ben Chu, congratulations. You the real MVP. Thank you, Rick. I truly appreciate it. Like I said, not one. Not two, <laughs> not three, <laughs> but I mean, regardless of that, this series, as we know, probably could have been a lot more different depending on how Boston closed out game four in general. And, you know, that's uh, sadly what we discussed off air during our finals preview of Boston's kind of accidental stretches in some of these games would come back to bite them. And sadly, it came back to bite them finally. You know, it did. And... I'm a little bit kind of weirded out by uh, some of the strategic notions here. And again, I know, and I saw it with my Cavs over a period of time against the Warriors in the finals. I know that Steve Kerr is very good at doing his best to try to take things off the chessboard with the other team. I would sometimes be frustrated watching those games when I would feel like the Cavs uh, would play into that a little bit too much. Uh, and, and play into their hands a little bit here. And I cannot help but think, you watch game one, and again, Al Horford was not going to stay on that type of historic three-point stretch forever. I mean, the man is turning into Channing Fry in his late career, is he not? But uh, again, between him and you look at uh, Jason Tatum, who through the course of the series, uh, you look at their three-point shooting rates uh, that, that each of them had, uh, Jason Tatum was uh, 455. Al Horford was 625. I mean, again, uh, Horford 15 of 24, Tatum 20 of 44. You just wonder why they weren't hunting for those looks more often as the series went along. Right, and I think ultimately, too, Rick, one of the bigger things is, is that 
I think the Warriors essentially went with a feast or famine defense. They said, we're either going to let Jason Tatum try to beat us or we're going to let Jalen Brown try to beat us. And the issue, and we've discussed this too, like, again, remember, we were not so far removed from the middle of this regular season where people were thinking that they should get broken up. Right. And in the short term, while I do believe they're going to stay together, the question I think a lot of Boston fans will ask, like, are they enough in the big games to close it out? Because Tatum... Again, I'm not, I'm going to give him some. How, how would we say this? Rick? I'm going to give him some buffer zone only because he played a crap ton of minutes in these playoffs. He almost played ten thousand total minutes. Right. So I, I really cannot be angry or mad at him for not giving for being worn down because it, it, it's if you play two series that go to a game seven and you then have to face a team with championship pedigree like Golden State, you're just going to be worn down. I just don't care who you are. It's going to get run, worn down as a player, even if you're in the prime of your career. I agree with that. And that's where the question I always had about Boston looking at them, and, and I never stopped having this question, and that is, again, you know, you, you have the, your obvious one-two punch scoring-wise there of Tatum and Brown. But then as you look at the roster, who's the third guy? And you look at uh, Marcus Smart, and in our very recent NBA draft coverage that we did here on the show, uh, I spent some time talking about pedigree. Well, Marcus Smart, when he was in college, everybody thought was going to develop into this uh, amazing offensive player. He never has. He has uh, developed uh, defensively uh, very, very well and at an elite level, and he did boost his three-point shooting to 350 this past year, which is respectable to decent, uh, but I don't know that you can necessarily count on that going forward from him. You look at him, you look at Derek White, who was important to Boston when he came over, but was never fully integrated in that offense to where you could say, aha, he's the third option. Uh, you know, you've got Al Horford in the mix, but what's his ceiling at this point of his career? So that, to me, is the biggest question for them going forward firepower-wise, because I feel like they were definitely exposed in this series. Right, and I think ultimately the thing too is I don't even necessarily think it's a roster construction issue for Boston. Mm -hmm. I just think the bigger thing for them moving forward is is that there's somewhat of a flawed team that is. That I always tell you, we've always discussed this too. Right? If you're forced to go through two young guards and wings, mm -hmm. they better be the two best players in the game because if not, you're really leaving yourself open on a lot of the theirs. And again, it, it's tough to feel like. Boston overachieved because they played such a good end to the tail end of their, their second half of their regular season and on top of that going into the playoffs. But again, I mean, the Eastern Conference wasn't that strong this year. If you really want to be a Boston here and say, look, they beat up on two teams that dealt with injuries to just to get there. And, you know, they were pretty much a Jimmy Butler three away from getting eliminated in Game 7. So... It's going to be interesting to see where they grow and who they try and bring in, because I know they, uh, I know Brad Stevens has a treasure chest right now filled with, you know, draft picks and flexible guys. So they might go after a third star. We might see them try and homegrown another talent. And we'll see. One of the bigger things, and I think maybe one thing that we'll know, I'm not sure it had that big of an impact for Golden State, but the health of Robert Williams did impact the series. And it does feel like if he gets to some level of 100% for our playoff run, there's still a very dangerous team with him fully healthy. Very much so. And what I wonder is, does he project as a guy where, again, there are just a tiny, tiny handful of guys in the modern game uh, that uh, are, are considered to be 
at the level of potentially a big three on their team, having star power without necessarily fitting into the modern offensive game. And uh, the ones that come to mind are Rudy Gobert and, to a lesser extent, Clint Capella. And Robert Williams, he at least looks to me like a guy who can fit into that mold going forward here uh, as, as far as not your prototypical modern player, but somebody who really very much fits even in the modern game because of everything that he can do for you defensively. Right, and I think the major thing, too, just with Boston is that looking at the totality of their team and what they need is really just a, it's the issue a lot of these teams have in the league. It's like, they either have to have a superstar-esque type player who's always going to pour in their 30 points a night, or you're going to have to find that collection of two to three guys who can help get you there. Right. And right now, sadly, the jury is still out on Brown and Tatum, and it's weird to say that, considering that literally they're like four minutes away of taking a 3-1 series lead. Oh, absolutely, but I know what you're talking about here, yeah, and uh, again, both of them still growing to whatever degree, uh, Brown age 25, Tatum only age 23, so uh, again, room to keep really growing, and uh, Tatum in particular was somebody I felt took a quantum leap this year, Brown as well, uh, to, to be becoming, I would say, probably one of the top 15 players in the league or so. On the other side, uh, again, uh, conversely, uh, there there's... Everything that, again, you, you would consider to be eye-rolling from my point of view, as indeed has been the case, as uh, Golden State and their megalomaniacal ownership is talking about dynasties as far as the eye can see. Uh, but I look at this, and uh, again, I'm sure next year, you know, Clay Thompson is going to have his legs underneath him a little more than he did this year. Then again, he's going to have a lot more mileage on him, and with the injuries that he had, he might be kind of an older 32. At the very least, he's not the two-way force that he used to be where he was a real shutdown menace on the defensive end of the court. This was a team that really leaned on uh, Steph Curry more than any of the previous Golden State teams that had won championships. And it looks like that's going to be the mold from here on in. And that, as I say, I, I think they can probably count on Thompson coming back a little bit more so next year. Uh, you had a step-up year from Jordan Poole. Uh, Wiggins, particularly in the finals, was was pretty good, but uh, again, the hole in his game remains, uh, weirdly enough, in, in Golden State there, which is uh, based on outside shooting. His outside shooting has never allowed him to become a consistent star player, and on down the line it goes. Interestingly enough, he didn't have any of the younger players, the really younger players, that, that were having any kind of a role in this championship run. Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga, James Wiseman, the jury's still out on all of them to varying degrees, even though there's a lot of promise there. So I look at this, and I, I kind of think that the, 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 the end of the rainbow for Golden State is once Curry starts uh, you know, getting into a little bit of a downturn. He's already at age 33. You, you could, if we're going to be generous, I think you could see him playing at this level potentially another three years or so. But this whole notion of like indefinite contenders, indefinite contenders, I look at this like, What's this team going to be like when Jordan Poole is the best player on the team? You know what I mean? I think this is built right. around Curry. And I think, too, Rick, the major thing for them is that they have to... They did essentially what I think really good teams that have dynastic runs do, which is they retool mm -hmm. midway through. and got guys like Poole, got guys like Kaminga. And like you, you, I always use this analogy. You say what you will about the Golden State ownership group, but Bob Myers is one of the best GMs in the NBA. He's very good. And it felt like that they built this team to feature Curry, but then still grow some of their younger talent. And you gotta 
I mean, yeah, I give credit. Andrew Wiggins, the trade for D'Angelo Russell for Wiggins was the right move. Wiggins has proven to be the perfect 2B, 2 I guess you say 1B or 2A player for them that you can spread the floor. And I mean, the, the question I don't really have with Golden State that everyone else sees that, but I, I think that's more just because of the hater rate out there, is that I think long-term for them, they're within that range already of like the Spurs dynastic run, which lasted, if we really want to be honest, about 11 to 15 seasons. Golden State's coming in at about, what do we have, about 8, about 10-ish, I would say, Rick? Yeah, it's about 8 or 9, yeah. It's about 8 or 9, but I, I guess you could say, I, I'm saying we're, if we include sort of like their first playoff runs of Mark Jackson. Okay, yeah, more like than a decade back. timeline. So I think like they'll get there and they'll be fine. The real question ultimately, we discussed this too, is like how are those young guys going to move forward? But at least for contention for the next couple of seasons, I'm there obviously until we know what ultimately happens with all these other teams. They're, they're always going to be competitive but the thing is is that golden state is golden state when you have a championship pedigree you know how to live and deal with the big moments and it's clear to me that this finals is all about steph curry being steph curry and putting together arguably one of the tougher performances in the finals and considering he had one game where he played absolutely horrendously rick that golden state was still able to pull this out and it 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 goes to just how teams are built and i think Again, this also has to be a big baseline for Steve Kerr being a top three, even I think you can even get to the point, maybe even a top two head coach of Golden State continues to keep winning. Yeah, very possibly. And Steve Kerr, as we have noted repeatedly on the show, is somebody that changed the game by implementing the system that unlocked all of them. Uh, again, in the post-finals analysis, uh, Steve Kerr going out there and anointing Steph Curry as, and I'm paraphrasing here, but like the short Tim Duncan in terms of that, comparing his role to Tim Duncan's role in the dynastic role in San Antonio. And again, anytime I'm talking about Golden State, I'm always having to fight the very real risk of haterade. But I'll tell you where I don't see that as far as this thing get extended out, because Tim Duncan wasn't the best player on San Antonio by the very end. He'd been usurped by uh, Tony Parker, arguably Mono Ginobili as well. Uh, and then in the last NBA Finals, of course, Kawhi Leonard with the breakout performance against the Heat in 2014. When Steph Curry isn't the best player on Golden State, I don't see it at this point. And as I say, he's got maybe another three-year run at this level. He'd be age 36. Uh, and, and again, you know, shooting as opposed to some of the pure athleticism, he's got the game that's going to age a little bit better. But still, you, you, you look past age 36, 37, or whatever, it's hard to see somebody still remaining dominant, especially into their late 30s. I don't see this team being a championship contender once Steph Curry is past the point of being the best player on the team, because some of these other guys might step up, uh, but they're all question marks to varying degrees. Right, but the argument, too, is, as again, just to play devil's advocate, that's the same thing you could say about San Antonio during the uh, Spurs run at the tail end, too. They really needed the resurgence of, of Kawhi and just getting younger guys on that team. So, again, it, it, it's too hard to predict three to four years out. I think people who try to do that aren't really that smart, Rick, to be brutally honest with sure, you. Sure, sure. It just feels like, to me, that Golden State is in their sort of secondary run in the Curry era, and they're going to be there at least for the next three to five years. And we'll see if Jordan Poole turns into an all-star caliber guy, if Kaminga turns into a guy, if it's Moses Moody, if it's 
James Weissman. If it's somebody else, it's just I feel like Golden State had one of those scenarios that some of these teams face that were are dynastic teams where they have two years or three years they're either down or they just don't get there, but they're able to retool, and that's what essentially that's, this roster has been done. And to be honest, too, it also really doesn't hurt them as well that you can build around a Curry-type guy, but then essentially start to mold a guy like Poole or Moses Moody to be a Curry-type player. And right now it's clearly going to be Poole. So we'll see what happens with him. It's, it's a huge question mark to see where I feel Gold State's going to go. But they, the one thing I always like to say, Rick, the mistakes a lot of these teams make is they don't have multiple avenues. And the one thing I feel like Gold State has is multiple avenues at this point to try and build the next sort of team around these young guys. They do, and they have a, a promising young crop there that is better than most teams have in the league. It's just that they're all still at this point largely unproven to varying degrees here. The only the only devil's advocate I would make to your devil's advocate would be watching a series that's, of course, tattooed on my brain is the Cavs and Spurs in the finals in 2007. That was a tough one to watch. But I think you could watch San Antonio at that point in time, and they were so good that it was like, you. I think you could look at it and, and think to yourself, gosh, you know, if uh, Tim Duncan gets a clip by Tony Parker, this could still be a championship contending team. That's how I thought of San Antonio at the time here. I'm just saying there's nobody on Golden State I see at this point that makes me think the same thing. Right, and at this point, it really appears to be it will be Jordan Poole just because of the role he was able to take this season. Sure. But it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. I think the problem is, too, is Rick, is you can't, you can look ahead, but the problem is that when you're looking ahead, it's like you're not seeing the minor growth that a lot of these players play. Yes, and uh, again, the one thing that works uh, well in his favor, I will admit, is uh, stepping up, doubling his assists from the previous year, 1.9 to 4 this year, which shows you that he could at least be uh, somewhat, in, and, and again, Steph Curry's never really been a pure point guard, but he's always had enough assists to be able to thrive in that role. It's, it's as much Steph Curry's role as his shooting that's going to be a vacuum on this team once he's no longer at the same level. So if Poole can be evolving into that style of player, as well as, again, it's going to be make or break on his shooting from here on in. And 364 this year, up from 351 the year before. I mean, he's getting there, but I'm going to need to see some years above four before I crown him as being a guy that can take that mantle for them. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the biggest thing that I found surprising about these finals is you keep hearing over a period of time about what a draw the Boston Celtics are. And, of course, Golden State, uh, you know, in the big run that they've had over the last uh, just shy of a decade here, these finals not really bouncing back as sharply from last year. I mean, ESPN's, of course, putting out their press releases about 30% higher for this game. Yeah, off of, like, historically bad numbers in 2021 when it was Milwaukee and Phoenix. And, of course... The bubble finals in, in 2020 uh, in the fall in Orlando, though, though you can't, really can't compare those to any other year. But last year only ticked up off of that, I think, less than people expected. And I think it's fair to say with these two teams in the finals this year, it didn't tick up off of a bad 2021 as much as everybody would have thought, probably me and you included. Right, and I think the major thing, too, to notice is that we are a fragmented media culture in this day and age. So I can understand why some people who are NBA fans don't choose to watch the finals if they don't care. And if I'm being honest too, 
Golden State and Boston are two polarizing teams, but at the same point, too, it kind of feels like, to me, a lot of people have seen what Golden State was able to do, and Boston, while an interesting team, is not visually the most appealing team either. Okay, but that's... So, I mean, I'm not really surprised that these numbers were not as good as... In comparison to Phoenix, Milwaukee, who essentially were two young, were two sort of unknown teams that were kind of bouncing, that were trajectory-wise bouncing forward. I just make the argument, Rick, that if we're still using TV ratings in this timeline, I think it's silly. At the end of the day, it, it, I, I don't think uh, outside of the advertisers and all that, and we all know the behemoth that is the NFL, the Super Bowl is always going to do great ratings. So I don't think any sport is going to match the NFL just because it's so basically simplistic and so less time-consuming that people are always going to watch the Super Bowl or they're always going to watch a couple of week two or week three games at their own leisure in comparison to the NBA where the finals of the seven-game series, you're always going to have to, you're always going to have peaks and valleys. But again, I'm not too surprised, but it is, I think you and me both kind of expected a little bit of a higher number as well. Well, yeah, because here's the thing, and I'm not hearkening back to the days of tape-delayed NBA Finals from 79 to 81 or whatever it was. I'm going back three freaking years, Ben Chu, where it was they drew an 8.8 when it was Toronto and Golden State. And keep in mind, you're not counting Canadian numbers in here. So everything north of the border was a zero for the purposes of ABC in, in that series there. Uh, they draw an 8.8. You don't even get a 6.5 rating when it's Golden State and Boston. That, to me, is shocking. Although I went back, and it was interesting, that the, the, the Boston and uh, Lakers uh, matchups, uh, particularly 2008, not so much 2010, but 2008 was softer than I might have expected, and that was coming off of another historically bad one in 2007 when it was Spurs and Cavs. That one was way down. Even though it was LeBron's first finals, I assume because probably most of America thought it was a foregone conclusion that San Antonio was going to take it, and they did in four straight. So Boston had kind of a soft number in 2008. So if I'm going to alibi from the Celtics perspective, I might say, well, when you're coming off of a bad year, the baseline for the next year is going to be lower. But that seems odd to me because it's two entirely different teams the next year. You wouldn't think that there would be any number of people that are like, I didn't watch last year, and I'm less likely to watch this year. And I mean, also, too, one thing you also have to take into account, too, Rick, is we were coming off of a pandemic timeline right? where I think there might have been a little bit more interest in two teams like Phoenix and Milwaukee who hadn't been to the finals again. Right. In comparison to two teams who are Golden State has, is a, you know, they made you know, eight finals in their life. And not eight finals, but they, they've been consistent finals contenders. And Boston is one of those dynastic teams. So uh, <laughs> we expect ratings to be higher. But I'm not surprised, if I'm being honest with you, because stylistically these two teams are very different. And on top of that, it kind of feels like they're very, I hate to say it's very regionally based. You know what I mean? Right. But that's, like if, if you weren't a Golden State fan or a Boston fan, I can understand why you had zero interest in watching the Finals. But that's interesting that you mentioned styles to me, Ben Chu, because uh, for, for the NBA Finals, above all things in the world of basketball, that's where you're talking about bringing in the casuals. And folks like yeah. me and you might understand that. And like, oh, Boston with their defense, it can be kind of a rough watch aesthetically sometimes. I don't think Joe Bag of Donuts is out there necessarily thinking about that as much. 
you would think they would just be like, oh, Golden State and Boston, two, you know, glamorous marquee teams. You would think that they would be focused on that part of it way more so than the X's and O's when you're talking well, about showcase. Because we also live in a more fragmented media culture, too, though. Okay. So I think a lot of people probably, again, like I said, I'm not defending the ratings. I'm just more sure. essentially saying that these ratings are always going to be dipping and they're never going to get to the exact number that everyone wants. And to be brutally honest, I don't think TV ratings are so insignificant to the NBA in this timeline. It doesn't really matter. Are they going to be insignificant, though, when the next contract comes up? I know we're several years out from that, but uh, this is the kind of well, thing. It's not that, it's not about the, the uh, media deal ends in 2024, so. Yeah, well, I guess it's you not that far ratings, out. But here's the thing, Rick. When you have billion-dollar valuations for NBA teams, it doesn't matter. True, and I'm sure that... Uh, as long as you're still getting decent amount of... And we also know, too, like companies like ESPN, TNT, and all those things will find ways to budge numbers to make everything look better. Right. And at the end of the day, too, we've also discussed that just because the teams are... How do I say this? Just because, you know, the, the game ratings are not the same as the 90s or the early 2000s, the world was different back then. True. You were, I like to use the analogy, in, in 2000, you had only two or three means of, like, entertainment. In 2022, Rick, we have literally 15 different means of entertainment. Well, the, the timeline on that might be a little bit fudged, because I, I think it was back in the early 90s that Bruce Springsteen had a song uh, along the lines of, like, 62 channels and nothing on, so I get what, right. you're, I get what you're getting at. It might I'm be, just saying we're, we're in a more content-heavy timeline. So people who you would usually be casual basketball watchers don't have to care as much anymore. Well, I tell you what, let they me can fill their time with other things. Let me tie this into the other uh, dominant series on this show that you have been a part of, and that has been our series on going through uh, covering the business side of the streaming world. And you have posited a very unique theory that I've not heard anywhere else, which is that the pandemic represented. Uh, a much sharper and much more historic turn towards on-demand viewing, and one that we are never going to come back from. That there's basically a before and an after. That because again, during the pandemic, uh, for for the most part, when a lot of the new programming dried up, sports dried up, etc., all you had for the most part was on-demand outside of the news, which people got sick and tired of watching. And that uh, the notion that we will never be higher uh, than we were going into that because people's uh, viewing habits changed irretrievably. That's a very interesting thought on your part. I, I just think the major thing, too, is like just how we consume media in this day and age. And even for it's the, it's the NBA, too. It's like, yeah, you can see this, too, in some of their press releases where they trump it up their social media followings on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And it, it, it's one of those things where I, I think... The old regime is like, we have to focus on TV ratings. That's the only defining purpose. And in this day and age, you have to also consider older generational people are the TV ratings at the end of the day. We always know that ratings are skewed on some point too, Rick, right. at the end of the day. Right. And also, we, we also are seeing the growth of people staying home more. People are maybe not going out to sports bars as much as they used to be either. So it's a, it's a whole media landscape change. And I feel like the thinking has to change a little bit with it as well. It is, although theoretically, if less people are at sports bars, you should pop a better yeah, number. I agree with your prior point, though. I did expect these final numbers to be a little bit better, though. Oh, Just yeah. Just because Golden State and Curry are such a marquee team, 
Yes. Just in general. Yes. Boston's a you know a very legacy franchise, but at the end of the day, too, I'm not, again, I'm I'm surprised, but I'm not shocked. Okay. That's what I would say yeah. And I think we both have some degree of surprise on that. And again, we'll see what the final number for Game 6 and for the series is when it comes in. That hasn't come in yet as of the time we're recording this. But uh, again, uh, a very interesting uh, finals. A, a very, uh, again, a dark one for me, having to root for Boston against Golden State here. As I said before, reminiscent of the 2001 Stanley Cup Finals when, uh, again, predictably, uh, New Jersey, the lesser of two evils in my mind, lost to uh, Colorado. So I've been here before, and I'm staring down a, the, the barrel of a summer where Colorado and Golden State may both be champions. This is not the summer of Ricky, Bench you. No, not at all, sadly. Not at all. Not at all. But you know what? It's always a bright spot in the darkness whenever I get a chance to break down hoops or any other subject with you. Ben Chu, thanks so much for being here, my man. No, I appreciate it, Rick. Thank you so much, buddy, and thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1488.